Hello and welcome to Reckoning Higher Ed, a podcast dedicated to understanding the issues facing higher education today. I am Jeff Giovanni, and I am your host. Today, we have an interesting guest. Her name is Tanya Barnett. She is uh, someone who has spent quite a bit of time both on the uh, academic consumer side as a student in Ohio, but also as a faculty member and has since moved to Colorado for the last three years. So Tanya has background in business economics, political science, and her PhD is in higher education and leadership. Uh, she worked at Ohio University beginning as a um, academic advisor, uh, became the director of external relations and academic enrichment in 2012. She also served as director of degree programs, as well as the founding director of the Margaret Boyd Scholars Program. Moreover, she was the director of the MBA program at Ohio University as well from 2015 to 2018. And in 2018, moved over to the Leeds School of Business at the University of Colorado Boulder, where she is the director uh, of the Office of Career Strategy. Moreover, she is the founding director of the BE Tech Scholars Program, also at the Leeds School of Business at University of Colorado Boulder. So Tanya, welcome to the show. Thank you, Jeff. It's great to be here. And Tanya, uh, as I mentioned in the intro, worked both at Ohio University, lived in Athens, Ohio for a number of years, and recently, in the last three years or so, has found herself at the Leeds School of Business at uh, Boulder, Colorado. And you are currently the director of, in the Office of Career Strategy. And why don't you go in for, for you know, in, in, a, in a sort of one view of the different type of academic jobs, there's sort of for lack of a better uh, analogy, uh, like a tree trunk and then branches. So the, you have your like faculty, chair, dean, provost, et cetera. But then there's this whole host of support networks without which the university couldn't function. You know, mm-hmm. that, uh, and I'm talking the administrator, I'm not talking HR and payroll, I'm talking about those that directly support the academic function, um, you know, advising, you have associate deans, you have, you know, this this sort of, and sometimes it's a little less accessible to find out what they are because there's a lot of specialization within those. And a lot of these positions are created to, to meet certain niches and focus areas of that department or college. So talk to me about what this is, how it came to be for you, and uh, just go into that, that, that realm. I think the thing that's most important to start with is just having a wonderful experience and career in Athens, Ohio, at Ohio University, where the two of us met, Um, just really enjoyed my time there and grew so much. And then all of a sudden, I just was ready for sunshine and started doing a little research and said, hmm, if we could move anywhere, where should it be? and did some visits and found ourselves in Colorado like so many others do. And um, actually, Matt, my spouse, and I both came out here without jobs. And so with kind of a diverse background in higher ed, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do next. And there was this position that I almost applied to and then didn't. And then it came about a second time. And um, I was told, that's just perfect for you. And so I applied, even though I didn't agree. And here I am, almost three years later, at the Leeds School of Business. Um, 
So just doing this work, I think what you were alluding to in the co-curricular side and some would say student affairs, but I love being housed in an academic college. And so really leading this office that's really focused on career development and actually is really co-curricular in the sense that we also house mentoring programs, women's and leadership programs, uh, industry coaching that's really specialized to the areas students are interested in, experiential learning, employer relations, and then of course, you know, operations, things like that. Um, but yeah, there's this whole world out there of really kind of specialized work and programming and um, kind of a realm that really supports and enhances, I would say, the academic side of the house. Sure. And maybe to help uh, frame up some of our discussion and, and to where you got here, and, and I'll, let me back up and say, you know, I know you had mentioned this, but I recall, and I've known Tanya and Matt for, I don't know, 15 years, I'd say something along those lines. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And w- I, when you guys had moved to Colorado, we had already moved to Cincinnati. And so I had heard you move, and I was under the impression at that time you had moved for this job. So when you had told me recently that, no, actually, we both went out without jobs, my, my jaw about hit the floor, because that, that's a bold move. And of course, who wouldn't want to move to Colorado? It's an absolute stunning state but that that's certainly takes um it's a big step of faith if you will but it the the position you landed in sounds fantastic uh but i recall <laughs> back in the day when you decided to go back and earn your phd and during that time you uh, i can't remember exactly how that those paths overlap but you became started at ohio university as an academic advisor and then mm-hmm. sort of moved in those ranks. Uh, you were director of the Margaret Boyd Scholars Program and then worked in the uh, as part of the MBA program at OU as well. So kind of how, because you, I believe you had family at the time, you had two daughters and you're married. And so you, you, you had the, what the classic nuclear situation, if you will, and, but decided to, Hey, I'm going to go get my PhD and, and work full time, which is a huge load without a family let alone with a family. So what, why, why make that jump? What caused you to, to go back and, and, and just really immerse yourself in higher ed, both on, you know, work and as a student? Are you suggesting who would do that? That's really creepy. <laughs> yes. Well, it's certainly a, a huge commitment on top of other commitments you had too. So yeah, it seems that there would be a, a significant motivation to do that, not, you know, just people just don't, you know, Hey, I'm just going to get my PhD and, and all, and on top of having this, this passion for family and and that dedication, the time that requires. Well, I would have to say I've reflected on that quite a lot. And I think oftentimes to even pursue a PhD and I can't speak for everyone, but something I at least found within my higher ed cohort is sometimes there's something missing and it's just like this core need, you know, something in your soul. And if you don't have that, I would say don't pursue a PhD. Um, but like to back, you know, back that up and like the why of it, um, it really started with my master's program and my first real position, the first one I'm proud of uh, after graduating from my undergraduate program was at Ohio University. And I essentially grew up there and I worked with salt of the earth people, some of the finest people I've known in my entire career. And um, 
One of those people is David Disgutner, who went on to become the interim president of Ohio University, interim provost, and he was my dean for 14 years. The reason I mention him in particular, he's kind of like my model for leadership. I just so admire him. And his spouse is Lisa Bernier, and she is a political science faculty member at Ohio University. And for whatever reason, I was interested in what she was doing um, in political science. I just have an interest in it. And so I sought that master's program out in 2011. So I started at Ohio University in 2000, right around that time. So I was pretty far into my career, already had you know two daughters. And so really was non-traditional at that point. Um, but that master's program, still my favorite educational experience, just seminars and um, just, you know, debates and discussions that were just so civil. And I think really that's what's missing in the world. One of the things that's missing in the world right now. So I always think back to that, but that really just set that pathway, you know, just in motion for me. And from there, like I did that full-time program while working full-time and having two daughters in a year's time and then jumped right into my doctoral program. And so just so in love with the experience and learning. And so that's what set it all, all in motion. Yeah, that's really neat. And um, a couple of things I want to reflect on when you had mentioned uh, essentially don't take a PhD lightly. And I recall even back when I was in my PhD program 25 years ago or so, I would, you would, you know, people in the master's program, they would be like, maybe I'll get a PhD, you know, just kind of like seeming all light about it. And I was like, you know, and I, I remember literally saying these words, unless what you need to accomplish in life requires a PhD, don't do it. Not that the PhD is a bad thing, but it's a commitment and, and one that doesn't necessarily bring financial returns. So the return has to be elsewhere. So that, that has to have that passion for that content. <laughs> and I, I, I think I heard you say something very similar to that just now. And I, I uh, just brought back some memories. Um, I, I want to also take this opportunity. You mentioned David Discutner, and I had been at, I worked at Ohio University for over 16 years. And David Discutner is one of the most highly respected people I probably to ever work there. I will go out on the limb and say that with uh, confidence. As he had about more administrative positions than anyone I've ever known, because he served, he was the interim president. I'm pretty sure he was interim provost he for was. a while. He served as dean. He also served as chair of, of several departments, including in the medical school, social, uh, I can't remember the, the exact department. Uh, so I've actually worked with him as well because we were in the College of Health Sciences and Professions, and we worked with, did a lot of work with the med school and faculty in his department. And, and yes, he, he's, he is such a, a quality leader. So I, tell me from your point of view, because academic leaders you know, come in all, all sorts and all types what about his leadership style? And I, I didn't have the pleasure to meet his wife on a professional level. They lived in our neighborhood, so I had met her a few times. Uh, but David, I, I did uh, work somewhat more with. So, but what about him resonated with you as that, that leadership, that model, if you will? I mean, for me personally, and I think this would be true of many, I just don't know what they might 
say consistently, you know, what mattered most to them in particular. But um, for me personally, it was just room to try things. I'm a creative and that doesn't always fit in higher ed. So I'll just acknowledge that. Um, he's just very open as a human and he gives you room to try things, to fail. Um, and I just so respect that. And he realizes the value of it. And thinking about things that I tried and, you know, in hindsight, I go, oh, I kind of failed at that, you know, like writing my first grant proposal that went on to something great. He would never criticize or very rarely, you know, it would, it would be like, of course, I'm willing to do that do that at the last moment for you and edit this grant proposal, you know, or whatever it might be as I was like learning and growing. And he would say, I'm a colleague, you know, so he was also incredibly still is humble, you know, just the humility with him. Um, so accomplished and never made you feel um, anything but, you know, just encouragement. The other thing that I really loved as I got to know him better over the years, just his candor. Um, I don't know why I said it like that candor, um, but his candor, he's just, um, you know, would always say incredibly kind things, always praised in public. And no matter what, even when you knew <laughs> maybe someone hadn't earned, he would say truthful things, but, you know, always just err on the side of generous with his praise. And um, he's just so, like, thoughtful. And, and I love that he would tell you things, you know, in a direct manner, but, you know, behind a closed door. Like, he'd have a real conversation, you know, whether it was, like, growth that I needed or, like, trying to understand a situation. I just learned so much about the way higher ed operates and how to interact with it and how to lead from him. Um, so those are the things I personally love about David. I just think he's like the quintessential academic leader and I've tried to kind of model his ways. Um, that said, I've also learned that not everybody, you know, needs the same things, um, you know, that I admire most about him, you know, and so he, he wasn't, he would give you room and that's my favorite thing. And um, sometimes people need step-by-step -step details and that's, I'm a big picture leader, so that's not my strength, but um, yeah, I stand by. I just think he's one of the very best people, one of the best leaders and um, I admire him immensely. That's a, a, a very comprehensive and impressive list of, of attributes. And, and I have to agree. I mean, I did not work as closely with him as you probably, but what I, the, the, what I, the situations in which I did work with him, I saw it was very positive. Moreover, I've seen him come into departments that were ha were deeply struggling, and he came in as chair, and they just loved him. I mean, they just deeply respected him, and almost, and actually, I don't, I don't think almost, I think they wanted him to become the permanent chair of their department because he was there just to kind of hold things over till they were able to do an external search, um, and which they eventually... I believe did, but uh, the, the the faculty there really really hoped that he would stay or, or become their permanent chair, which is always a hard thing to do when you're coming a, a struggling department as a, as a leader to really resonate with the faculty because you're you're trying to disentangle other elements that that can be seen you know as, as particular challenges to to really getting everyone to, together and and build your rapport because when you're when you're new you don't have that rapport and you're trying to heal some wounds perhaps so that I could see that uh, mm -hmm. as a challenge and a huge success when, when for him to have broken through that. 
I've never heard someone say an unkind word about him. So I don't Me know neither. where people yeah. that would go um, or if no one's ever had, a, you know, a less than amazing experience. But for many years, I regretted staying with University College for so long because that's where I started. I thought, who does that? Who does, you know, looking back, like who doesn't like go on and try different things? But I just had so much room to grow there. And now so many positions later since University College, I've just realized that it was just that good back in those days um, under his leadership. So I'm so grateful I did and had those opportunities. Oh, so yeah. I'm going to pivot back to your position here now at Colorado mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. in the business school. And, and what I want you to do is connect for me what you're doing in that business school and how that serves what you see as the mission of higher ed. And I don't necessarily mean the mission of Colorado, but the just what is higher ed intending to do? Or you can, if you want, focus that more into what the program, let's say the business school and the programs that you are working with in the business school are trying to do and how your work supports that or moves that along in the progress of academics? Well, I think business schools are interesting in general. Um, and I want to start by saying I do have an appreciation for um, and hold deeply the value of higher education holistically. So, you know, the arts and sciences, the liberal arts, all of it, like I think it all has value. Um, that said, I will say I also have grown to appreciate business schools, um, professional schools, you know, kind of that more outcome driven approach to higher education as well. So I think just a, a nice mix of um, different philosophies around higher education, just especially as it's just been challenged um, of recent years, of uh, recent decades, I suppose. But that value proposition of higher education is something I think a lot about. And so um, within the work I do now, it's not necessarily where I would have seen myself, but I love the, the variety and the combination of it. So I work in a very competitive business school, um, and I'm just really proud of the work that's accomplished there, um, we have really dedicated resources for our students. And so I lead a team of 15 and we're eclectic. I always say we have an eclectic team. We focus on a lot of different things, but really all of them kind of align to providing the experiential side of the education. And, you know, we are, um, an R1 research institution, uh, our faculty are traditional in the sense that they very much value their research and kind of like to stay in the academic realm. Um, I think at Ohio University, it was much more experiential in general, and the faculty were kind of a part of that um, mission as well. It's not as much that way at, at the Leeds School of Business or can't speak for all of CU Boulder, but in, in kind of the world I'm in now. And so what I appreciate that appreciate about that is really that there's just so much room to kind of complement that and, and, you know, room to play in terms of what we're offering our students. And so we're really developing them, um, you know, providing those action-based learning experiences, really aligning their interests and their experience to the world of work. And I, something I'm pretty passionate about is like just preparing them for, the fourth industrial revolution and just kind of the expectations of, you know, kind of gaps in 
um, experience in terms of the workforce and what companies are needing as well. So kind of bringing all that together. Yeah, and it's interesting, the fourth, would you call it the fourth revolution? Fourth industrial revolution. Four the fourth IR. industrial revolution. Uh, and, and not something we hear much outside, at least in my uh, area of discipline, but I totally get what you're talking about. And it's funny, as soon as you said that, my where my mind went is, and because of this is the motivator for the podcast, is the revolution that's going to happen in higher ed and... Um, and, and what I'm sort of hearing you say, and I, I'm sort of, I'm, I'm going to make a statement, but it's sort of a, a question for you to respond to, or at least a statement for you to respond to, agree, disagree, or, or at least hear your thoughts on it, is that what you're doing is providing a lot of uh, more niche or uh, attention, individual attention for people to progress through their programs and get things that they wouldn't necessarily just get just taking classes and moving on. For example, um, are you familiar with Quantic? This is a, a new MBA. It's all in line. It's like $9,000 over 10 months. And they're, 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 you know, you go to the website and I don't know, I've not done a deep dive. I've, I've looked at it, but right on the table, it's like Quantic $9,000, Wharton $214,000. And it's like, are they suggesting that that's what you're getting is the Wharton experience for Five percent of the cost is that what they're really going for? Um, and I've you know there's obviously a lot of pros cons and and this goes to what what differentiates what we do in traditional higher ed versus what some of these new models are and and not to say that one is going to exist and the other won't or the traditional model is right as it is because I don't think it is I think it's going to have to adapt dramatically but. I don't think you just throw out the baby with the bathwater, as the old saying goes. So talk to me a little bit about that, what, how you see in a, in a very conceptual way what you're providing as a potential differentiator in higher ed. I love that you brought that up. I was actually trying to find that program earlier, but I didn't remember that's what it was called. I always see it advertised, and I've been thinking like, is it the beginning of the end, um, which I've been wondering about for a decade, so possibly, um, as someone who loves change, you know, and maybe it's a long beginning. It's a lot. I love that. <laughs> it's a long beginning. Um, yeah, the value proposition, that's also something pre pandemic that I would talk about often since I came to Leeds in particular, just about the value proposition, because our tuition is higher than the rest of CU Boulder. Uh, just fun fact. And my daughter goes there. So I think about that a lot, like, is that worth it? And I feel proud of the work we do. And, you know, I think the additional cost is worth it. And I think the expectations are high within the school and beyond. And so I, I just brought up the Quantic website. You know, they're kind of advertising some of the, the same things that I might say, this is what you don't get. So I don't know the quality of what they're delivering. Uh, that said, I, I think there are a few things that stand out to me that I would argue are worth it. So. The dedicated resources, uh, we have an undergrad population of about 4,000 students, and it's really intentionally kind of kept at that number, a small freshman class or first year class, to kind of really get, you know, students that kind of sense of belonging early on. Um, and then I think along the way, like, you know, a lot of 
really incredible experiences are just part of what I would call the career journey, but the undergraduate experience in general, you know, a global experience, for example, live client consulting, even if that's not your area of emphasis, um, incredible opportunities to, you know, almost all of our students do at least one internship, micro internships, so much applied learning. Um, but one of the things I've been thinking about, you know, those are all great and we do provide those opportunities uh, and we've been doing it all mostly virtually for the last year as many universities in the country. And that really makes you think about that value proposition. Um, I still think it's the network at the end of the day, you know, it's the relationships. So it's just like those experiences not only shape the way you think, they expand your worldview, all of those things, the academic side complements, you're getting that breadth and depth of learning, um, maybe a baseline of knowledge that you're taking into the workforce. Um, but yeah, I really think the differentiator, and I compare that to Ohio University a lot, which also has some really great experiences, a good business school, like what's the difference? Um, I think it's the access that you gain through that network. So it's not only the industry connection, but the students that are part of your like learning cohort and then kind of that network that you're building along the way and even the awareness of that network you should be building and those connections you're building that I think shape the success of your future. Kind of just, you know, like what we talked about in learning communities for ages, what's the value of a learning community? It's kind of learning the ins and outs of, you know, the, the norms of being a successful student. But I think it's building on that and taking that, you know, to a next level. And, and just the, you know, when we're in person or virtual, the companies that want to partner, the, you know, the companies that are, you know, knocking down the door to hire the students to provide those internship experiences and earlier on than you might have elsewhere. So I, you know, for an MBA program, and I did lead an MBA program previously, and I was really, really proud of what we did for the price point that we were able to deliver that at. Um, I would say it was a value. Um, you know, how is that different from Harvard or, or Wharton or, you know, some of the other just top tier programs? I just think that's a main factor. You know, it's all of those things lead to a network and it's the prestige at the end of the day. Right. And, and I have heard that anyway, I'm not uh, in that business school sphere, but uh, for folks who are in that, that's a, a common theme is one of the, the biggest values you get from your experience is that network of individuals you've gone through your cohort, as it were, in those um, experiences you went through together. In fact, I've, I could think of friends I've had 15 years ago, they've gotten their MBA and they're still working with some of those that folks in that cohort which is a huge differentiator. So, something you said uh, tipped a, a thought in my head, and, and you mentioned that the tuition at the business school is higher than the rest of university. And that's, I think, generally true. As a business, uh, especially MBA graduate, uh, that program tends to be a higher tuition than the general tuition for graduate programs at most universities, certainly public. Uh, medicine is another one that tends to be high, and, and that's for obvious reasons with the huge, huge cost of, of delivering uh, with, you know, cadaver labs and the rotations working with other uh, hospitals and, and such that often have to get remunerated for, for that effort. Uh, and law is another one. Do you, do you have a sense as to what is it specifically about business schools that, that tend to have, why they have higher uh, tuition rates than the, than the rest of graduate programs at a particular university? 
I mean, I think some things there is a commonality there, you know, it's the experience, the network, but I'm also thinking about it. We are connected and I think maybe the first of its kind in the country a physical connection and um, also a collaborative connection to our College of Engineering and Applied Science at CU Boulder. So that's a, a new partnership. And the only reason I bring that up, the tie-in is, I think that's also true of engineering. And I would jokingly say, but also mean it, I think there's this expectation of results. You know, like some of the other disciplines, you can, you can learn and the philosophical underpinnings, and we would say it's a way of thinking or, um, but I find that especially to be true. There's an understanding, you know, whether it be engineering or business, um, medicine, you name it, I think there's an expectation of what you know. And so that goes back to kind of when I mentioned that baseline understanding, you know, there's a, a language that goes with that. Um, you know, if you're an accountant or something like that, you have to be able to deliver on certain competencies, kind of like law, you have to pass the bar, you have to pass that, you know, accounting exam, for example, um, you know, there's licensure, there's same in your discipline, you know, there's just that expectation that you've developed certain skills and can um, kind of deliver on those competencies. And I also think in a big picture, that is where we're headed in terms of even just the interview process for, you know, the workforce in general, just that competency-based expectation of, what do you know when you're graduating from an undergraduate or a graduate program? So I think we're kind of headed in that direction. So my experience over time, um, I think I'm appreciating, you know, the business education more and more. Let me, let me paint a picture for you that goes to your point. <laughs> you yes. have a professor teaching a class, whatever it might be, say it's statistics and there's typically, well, usually the content for one's class comes from what you've had in your statistics class way back in the day, and you model it after that. <laughs> Let's just be frank about it. Um, and there's, of course, a lot of sharing among colleagues of, of material, which really helps, especially newer faculty in developing materials. But when it comes to the assessment, the faculty mm -hmm. member instructing that course that particular semester writes the exam, hopefully it's a little different than the one they had last year. And that, gr that grade on that exam is a certain proportion of the grade for the course. And then the final exam, similar type of thing. And maybe there's some homeworks in a project. But inherently, those are accepted as valid, right? Valid meaning they're, they're assessing the knowledge you want them to have. And that has never really been questioned. And now, in my area, which is in the health professions, we're developed, especially in the graduate uh, areas uh, like speech language pathology and audiology, where the competencies mean very, very specific things. Like you know how to do this type of evaluation on this type of patient and, and, and pick the right diagnosis based on the criteria, you know, so it, it is for something that can't, is not so quantitative, like a computer program or a mathematical problem. It's a little more structured than say, you know, you can write a, a paper, you know, say a, an English paper with a certain amount of correct grammar, like what's the rubric in other words for that. And, and what we struggle with, I think broadly is what is a competency, a valid competency measure. And, and that is something I don't think 
higher ed really has nailed down because we've we've accepted this idea of what the professor develops or the instructor develops as that assessment is inherently valid and therefore the grade is a measure of competency, which I'm not sure people ultimately believe, but that's just what is. Do you have any, any thoughts on that? That so that. Well, I hate that you chose statistics as your example. Number one, <laughs> I struggled my entire life um, with math concepts, even though I really enjoyed them. And then statistics, I had to take masters and doctoral statistics, and I'm like, you know, how bad am I? You know, in the in this realm, you know, I did relatively well. But I would argue maybe what you're getting at, I don't think that was a valid kind of display of my understanding and it was maybe better than I deserved in statistics. So let's just say that, but um, kind of how do you evaluate and how do you do that without bias? I'm not sure if that's what you were kind of like getting at, but just how do we do that holistically maybe and do we value? Yeah, it certainly has a role, but how do we, yeah, get basically holistically in, in, in a way that we can say, forget, like you can basically have someone take, for example, I don't know, all the classes in your undergraduate business program and through some either experiential set of experiences, like a lab practical, for lack of a better word, or simulation, you know, interviewing style, business uh, situations, what we would call high fidelity simulations, um, or, you know, some through some standardized um, or validated tool to really to, to assess the competencies rather than knowledge or skills per se, because those would be assumed or needed to have a competency. Um, it, it's kind of the thought process there anyway. So back to the original question, like in an interview setting or kind of demonstrating competency, what are, you talked about that in a very like quantitative way. What I'm trying to get at is you were talking about um, trying to develop competencies in these kiddos graduating. And I, I to and I, my thought process, I totally agree with that. And, but I think higher ed at large really struggles with measuring competency. We know how to measure knowledge. Sometimes we know how to measure skill, but to truly measure a competency because, you know, and I, I was sort of like, yeah, that too. But no, as I think about it, when you said, well, what about bias? It's like, no, yeah, that's a big deal because take, for example, in a, in a health profession, a nurse, here, do this procedure, you know, put this IV in or whatever it is, you're watching them do it. And that's, that's so full of potential bias. How someone carries themselves, it can exude a sense of confidence and competence as opposed to them actually doing it correctly in an efficient way, in a sanitary way, et cetera. Um, and, and that seems to be a, a huge hurdle in higher ed to really move to this competency-based outcome, in, in, in my musings anyway. Yeah, you just touched on so many things. Um, you're right. You've got, you know, you, you talked about kind of the way that you do something, you know, whether gender being a factor in that, uh, if it's leadership, like how do you demonstrate you know, power skills or soft skills or all of those things. Um, I really wasn't making quite as much of a loaded statement, but I think it's a really important one right now because, you know, just this past year, because of COVID, 
at the undergrad level at minimum, and I'm sure at the grad level too, we're in this new kind of space of top institutions not requiring ACT and SATs. And so that really threw everything for a loop in terms of how do you evaluate your top tier scholars that are coming into, you know, that first year, that smaller, uh, more selective first year class. Um, it's not necessarily based on that, the fact that you had a 35 ACT uh, as like the kind of gets you in the door for consideration. So it's just like, what are you evaluating then? So, yeah, I mean, I think that that's huge. And, you know, when you evaluate a leader, it's especially I'm a little sensitive to this, especially as a woman. So the, the gendered piece of this and as an introvert, but saying like your executive presence and business schools hold on to that pretty tightly, your executive presence. Well, that can look different, um, you know, and that term does seem a little fraught with, uh -huh. yeah. with connotations anyway. I, I, I couldn't say what they were because I've not heard that phrase executive presence, but hearing it, you're like, <laughs> That means something specific it, that isn't going to be defined. It really right? does. It, it sort of feels like Yeah, it. like an kind of intangible. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a really good question. Um, I really was looking at it more in terms of when you go into the workforce, um, you know, and you gave the, the really great examples of like being able to kind of demonstrate certain skills like I can successfully perform a certain type of surgery or you know whatever it might be um, do an evaluation so I was kind of looking at it more in that way um, and honestly I think that is probably the most fair way you can look at it right now because the the question I was asking which was yeah a hugely loaded like canon really question because it, well, it's it's really the problem facing all of higher ed, all of education, not just higher ed, uh, is what is the validity, you know, because the schools still have tests written by teachers and, and there's some guidance. But really, at the end of the day, is especially and I can only really speak to the higher ed portion of what validity measures are there and what is what is competency? How do we do? Oh, we have learning uh, objectives and such, but. Like, I, I really feel like there's there's that glue just missing to really attach those and the and the measures being truly validated. Well, you just get a rubric uh, and again, out, you know, just a rubric. I, that, the and that certainly that helps. Um, yeah. I just feel like a I know it is, is it is uh, everything right. It, it it is it is very an oft used yeah, <laughs> and and it's a hell it is a very useful tool. True. But right, it doesn't necessarily validate something. It just tells the students <laughs> what to do, right? Like what here, this is this much, so make sure your grammar is good. Or this is this much, make sure you don't say ums and uhs in your presentation right? or, 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 the or whatever. Interviewer yeah. Or the faculty member or, you know, whatever it is. It's like how we're, we're right. going about that process. So now I, I think we're going to have to come up with kind of a holistic kind of sense of what we value, at least as higher ed, to answer that question. Um, I just, I don't have the sense that we're there yet, but it's constantly being challenged, right? And then I think what you were maybe getting to with Quantic and then EdTech is booming. You know, there's a low code revolution or no code revolution just, you know, developing right now. So it's just, just this like time of unprecedented change. Like I really feel like it's one of those pivotal times in history. So talk to me a little about that, ed, the EdTech revolution specifically, I believe, um, like, uh, was it 
workforce. Is that the oh Salesforce? Salesforce, thank you. And another one out on the West Coast, Dreamforce, I think. Oh, well, that that is, that's the Holy Land. That's the annual kind of convention for Salesforce. And it, you know, all comes together okay. in San Francisco. And it's a way of life for, you know, about a week. And um, yeah, San Francisco, I don't know how recently you've been there, but it's Salesforce land. And, you know, if you go into a bus stop or you walk down the street and you've got buses passing, Salesforce is like the new economy. And it left me thinking a lot about um, as much as I celebrate Salesforce, they're doing incredible things. The last Dreamforce I was at was November, November before the pandemic kind of hit. Um, they were doing, you know, this this presentation about how they're tracking skills. So essentially your, your skills development, this global kind of uh, dashboard, if you will, of like, you know, their competency system, their uh, skills development tracking. And, you know, if you have, they would say like, oh, I have five certs in these different, you know, areas and you can train for free and you might have to pay for the exam. But essentially, you know, if you, um, really great trailheads and maybe 150 hours and at most you're on your way to a six-figure position and so it's just it's a new economy you know and that's advertised everywhere uh in san francisco in particular um it's just a, a revolution and they're you know a source of low code that i think is probably the best known one at this point but they've taken on higher ed they've taken on nonprofits in general uh corporations. Um, the last time I looked, which was maybe a year ago, it, it was a ridiculous percentage, maybe 83%, maybe 90, 90% of Fortune 500 companies use Salesforce as their CRM. Mm -hmm. And then right, I right. think it's over 90% if you get to the Fortune 100 companies. So anyway, they are business, you know, that and the, the demand is unmet just in terms of that workforce development. So, so that brings up two immediate questions in my mind. Um, and the, the first is uh, the content and how that's governed, how it's developed and, and, the, and the, what sort of validates their content or is it a more of a skill set like a, like, oh, I just, you know, for example, if you go take an undergraduate degree in software engineering or, or computer science, um, you don't just learn how to code, right? You learn, you also are taking broader level courses and liberal arts to ideally become a, a little more aware and seasoned and cultured as a human being. Mm -hmm. So what do we lose with that? Which to me, if we are losing that is a big deal. The second question is what could that possibly inform traditional metric or not metrics, but traditional institutions of higher education, you know, these large publics like, you know, Colorado, Ohio State, you know, whoever, these mm -hmm. just just the, the colleges and universities as to where where are we going? And the, the you know, Wayne Gretzky had that famous statement of don't don't skate to where the puck is. You skate where the puck's going. Yeah. And um, the the. And what's challenging, I think, is we don't even know where the puck's going in some ways. And an industry is, is telling, is, is, is kicking the puck, and we're trying to figure out where it's going. And that, that, that's like the slightly cynical side, perhaps. 
but that is a sort of an element. We we not we're not even quite sure where to go yet, how to how to get there, let alone how to get there. So what from this early these early uh, projects, if you will, because these are only going to get more pervasive and more systemic of, of opportunities offered by non traditionally non academic. But what what could we divine from that potentially? So I know there was there were two questions, neither of which were light. So I apologize again for, for hitting you hard with these. I can handle it. Uh, but in terms of where we're going, so I think you started with Salesforce, and I think you were kind of asking about what my note says. You know, thinking about Trailhead is what Salesforce has is their learning experience system, is what they call it. And you know, in higher ed, especially online learning. For quite some time, we've had learning management systems and a standard with that. I remember doing quality matters training back in the day. I don't know if that's still around. And I remember also thinking to develop a course using that quality matters standing, it had to be of higher quality because you can develop for quality matters and then deliver that, you know, in person in the classroom, which I still prize as like the very best, you know, I say I love my political science seminars. I think that's that's just the be all end all of, you know, education for me, the why I would pursue it myself, um, you know, opening your mind to other thoughts and opinions and growth and all of those things matter very, very much to me personally. Um, but what Salesforce has done, I respect. So if we think of like the credentialing, digital badging, um, just their kind of place globally and kind of the value of their positioning in terms of corporate America, but globally in that corporate realm, um, they've developed a top learning experience system. And what that also has is like these beautiful learning journeys. I mean, they're, they're like beautifully illustrated. They are clean and clear and, um, you know, meet multiple kind of ways of learning the modalities. They also, um, you know, kind of have a clean and simple way of delivering that, that knowledge that builds at scaffolds. Um, you also have kind of the sense of, you know, having to demonstrate your knowledge. So they have a sandbox and so they have badges and then they have super badges and, you know, those are more valuable. And then, you know, this collection they call kind of the trail mix. And so I think in some ways, I hate to say this, it me just a little bit and I also celebrate Salesforce so I'm also like you know extremely dichotomous and also say things that you know don't easily agree with one another but um, I think they're doing it really really well and uh, sometimes better than higher ed maybe oftentimes um, just in terms of how they've like essentialized and so they they've simplified which I think know means they really you know know what they're delivering and what they're the outcome they're trying to get to and they're preparing you know the workforce there's a huge gap and they've acted and created an amazing system to get there. And it's better than what we've been doing in higher ed in terms of learning management. So when I came to Leeds, I said, Salesforce, we were already using it for years. Like we're kind of a national leader in terms of within Leeds of how we're using Salesforce um, to track students and their experience and their engagement and their, you know, um, placement statistics, you name it, um, the data basically. And so I said, it's the best 
learning management system I've seen, the best learning experience system, as they would say, there's nothing better out there. And just you mix that with their their kind of reputation and, you know, that's a household name, I think, anyway. Um, how do you top that? It's kind of like Amazon going into healthcare. Education's probably right around the corner. I mean, I don't know, but... It very well could be. In fact, uh, no, you're actually right. Um, there was an article in the Wall Street Journal. Uh, it, well, it was called the title of the article is this degree was brought to you by Amazon. And um, now, mind you, some of the similar uh, questions or concerns I have would apply, which is to what extent is this simply providing a skill set for someone for a particular industrial job versus a true education and, and, the, and the greater sense of the word of becoming more than you are. However, there is a lot to be learned here. And I think, so I think you're right to have this, I think you, the word I was thinking when you were describing it was cognitive dissonance. Um, but, but you're not wrong because what the private sector has, I think over, especially large public universities is, is being nimble. Um, you know, the, the regulations that are required, A, of, of large universities, just being public, for one, are just enormous. And, and as such, you get, and, and very compliance heavy, that's, that's another one because everything's federal reporting, you have all these guidelines. Oh, yeah, and, and, it's, and it's a challenge. I mean, it, it nothing, nothing, if anything, it just it, it slows progress because you're, can we, can we, can we, um, and there's some law somewhere that is being broken or, or has to be at least investigated for a very long time. Um, but one, one thing you, you identified, I think, and this has been a theme, I know higher ed has been working on this for some time as well as micro-credentialing. You're talking about digital ballot badges. So essentially the idea, and this, I believe, transcends out of a, a cultural trend for flexibility and obtaining degrees and education is the idea where you can say, well, I'm going to absorb this little module here, this little module here, and, and those are individually tracked as opposed to say, here's your program that's a two-year yes. full-time degree you. and you have to give up the rest of your life to do it. That's a big commitment. I might have a few hours on a weekend here. I might have an evening free. Well, here's the content. Take it, and oh. when you do whatever final thing on this little thing, you get, I think uh, you called it a digital badge or whatever, and... Um, maybe a, a middle ground here would be a stacking certificates. So for, for those not in the education world, a certificate uh, is a, what we like, call transcriptable. It shows up on your transcript as a focus area, but it's not as big as a minor. And so you have, a, you know, your major, I majored in biology and you say, well, I can minor in animal biology potentially. Uh, a certificate program is just usually a, a collection of a few courses in a, in a focus area but it's not a degree. And what the, some of the thoughts are, say someone wants to get a post undergrad degree, so a master's, for example, um, in a, say a leadership program or, or health leadership, you can take a certificate and, you know, I don't know, healthcare systems, a certificate and uh, administrative leadership and another, potentially another certificate. And you, you could stack these over time and then you do two of the four or whatever, however, the, the, the structure in that particular program, you get a master's degree. Now, that's a, a fairly large modular approach. And I think what you were talking about, Tanya, was that 
it, it gets down very granular to these uh, little badges, uh, digital badges, and what they've called micro credentialing, right? Um, so, it, it, you, do you do do you guys do that um, either at your undergrad or graduate in the business school? And so, talk to me about that. How that how does that work? Because that is something that's going to be, mm-hmm. a, I think, a major continuing trend. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. Short answer, yes. Um, so CU Boulder has actually kind of beat the business school to this approach. So we do have um, a transcribable or, you know, the, the, the micro-credentialing that will show up on your transcript. So they're doing that ahead of us, actually, which kind of pains me a little bit. Like, I'm already ready to move on to the next thing. I'm bored with this already, but uh, here we are. So yes, I mean, that's happening. And I will also give Ohio University um, kind of props, like five years ago when I was there, they were already working on, and I think it's a it's a thing already, you know, a, a leadership master's program that was stackable. I was on a committee that we were building a stackable um, master's degree, so stackable certificates. And um, I don't know. I mean, it's an approach, that modular approach. Um, I don't, it doesn't appeal to me as much. I feel like that's kind of what's missing uh, in terms of like my personal experience and why I think higher ed can be amazing uh, is really, you know, it's this conversations, it's the seminar. And so, you know, if everything can be done with immediate feedback and, you know, you can do it by yourself and earn your little like digital badge um, or micro credential. I don't know, you know, I'm, like that. I'm sensing some cognitive dissonance again. For me personally, <laughs> there is some, yes, there's additional cognitive dissonance. I, I mean, and I'm still thinking about it. Cause like I celebrate both sides and I ultimately think competition can be a really positive yeah. thing. Maybe that's why I work. For I, I think you're, school, I but, think you're um, right on by yeah, the way to have I, that dissonance. And, and for me, that dissonance often goes with how do we compete in the sense of be relevant yeah. in a long-term basis as higher education by providing this, and I keep referring to the greater education of becoming more versus shoving content down your throat and getting a, a good job. But but it's just purely what it takes to do that job. So that, that's kind of where I'm at. And so I, I and so I think uh-huh. in a way those are parallel issues because really it is those seminars where you do forced in some ways to open your mind because you're disagreeing. You're, you're trying to, you know, really argue in, in the classical term of having a premise, having a logical train, being challenged on that and being forced to adapt because your premise or your arguments and logic may, may be flawed. And, and right by just absorbing content that that's not there. And the downfall of society might be that you, you know, lose that sense of civility. I don't know. I feel like we might be, we might be here. It's, it is here. Um, I'm not sure, but I'm kidding, but a little bit serious. Um, well, I found my sweet spot really in the academic enrichment space and that leadership development space. And I think 
I did my kind of round of teaching. I originally thought that's, you know, like that was the be all end all, like the tenure track professor. And I thought, oh, I'm going to go in this PhD program and that's what I'll want to do. I no longer want to do that after. It's harder than it looks, you know, the teaching. It's not for everyone. Um, so I do hold teaching in high regard while I also kind of, you know, like weigh like what's a value, what's not. Um, but for me, it's the, the experiential piece is um, really valuable. And so when I think of, you know, I've founded three scholars programs now, and those tend to be kind of complementing the academic space, working with faculty, having faculty involvement. I very, very much value the role of faculty. I value their research. Research is one of the takeaways that I think, you know, what don't you have? You might have an R&D unit in, in corporate America, but kind of what's different. Faculty and universities are still kind of informing oftentimes or maybe kind of working with um, corporations on things like that. So I, I still think that's where we're like really strong and innovative. I think the experiential, and I'm sorry, I'm gonna make another kind of point as I think about you know the Amazons, the Googles, the Apples, the Amazon U, as you mentioned. Um, when we think about that, especially with top tier companies, kind of doing away with the requirement of an undergraduate degree or, you know, like a, a degree in general, like that changes everything. So when your top companies are saying, I don't require your, you know, your degree from Harvard, big deal. It's not like a competitive factor. That really, uh, that was my kind of like, wow, this is here. Uh, <laughs> Things are, are changing quickly, but my argument to that even three years ago was, okay, well, what do you fill that time with? Like, how do you develop if you don't have the traditional undergraduate experience? Um, and I still think, you know, long-term, and I thought this for at least a decade, it's like that becomes the, you know, the elite experience, right? Like that residential campus experience that's incredible. It's like, you know, I think it's going to have its place for quite some time as long as someone can afford it and there's a demand. Um, I still think it's kind of the premiere, but like if you could create like a, a parallel, equally valuable experience that I don't know, you're like learning, growing, expanding your way of thinking, experiencing different cultures, like, you know, whatever. Um, I think, you know, there's room to have it to have it challenged. And I think it's either higher ed is going to become more competitive and a better value proposition, um, or we just lose a lot of institutions, which I think is already happening. You know, it's just like they're they're being challenged. Uh, they're, you know, they're joining forces potentially. They're, you know, um, combining colleges, um, kind of mm -hmm. essentially maybe yeah. talking about these centers of excellence, like even within a state. So, you know, like if you're Ohio University, not to pick on it, but in the corner of the state, it's like, you're going to be excellent in this. And then, you know, if you're Akron, you're going to do this. And um, so I don't know. I don't know what will happen. But ultimately, I mean, we've known it was coming. It makes me crazy that we're so slow to act. We've been, you know, seeing the warning signs for decades um, before I even knew what was happening. I remember hearing it. Um, so the writing's been on the wall. There certainly has been plenty of data for many decades suggesting or indicating the enrollment decline that has been happening, uh, some of which has been predicted, some of it which has not. Uh, 2008, the birth dearth, that whole thing that we've discussed before. 
And certainly enrollment is um, an issue that we're keenly interested in this podcast and we'll be investigating much more in the future. But Tanya, I want to thank you for coming in today and and spending time with me on this podcast. It's been a really interesting conversation and and to hear your perspective as someone who came into higher ed uh, in maybe a little bit of a different way than, than is traditional. Uh, but is just a, a unique but really neat experience. So thank you very much and um, hope that people find this interesting as well.